welcome to Everybody A, Everybody Gay. A queer exploration of Pretty Little Liars. With your hosts, Speak Pirate, a.k.a. Joanna. I'm here, I'm queer, and I have a cat named Spencer. And your other host, LCO123, a.k.a. Vina, a proud member of the Church of Vanderjesus. Hello! Welcome to the new year, and welcome C.C. Drake, a.k.a. Charlotte De Laurentiis, to Rosewood, PA where she has chemistry with literally everyone. This episode has a lot going for it, including the introduction of the She Lives Under Trees code, Hannah and Aria sharing a bed, a car crash that leads to a Spencer caper, Cece giving Emily a pet name, but it also has some forced heteronormativity bringing it down, namely Cousin Nate having a date with Jenna and Ella eating ice cream with Pastor Ted and then falling for the current, as opposed to future, Predator Brew owner. <laughs> Toby is the only boyfriend around this week, but he kicks his toxic masculinity and baby man demeanor up to an 11 to pick up the slack. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Toby. Toby in this one. Um, yeah, this is, a, this is a really fun episode. It's, uh, you know, I mean, this is a, kind of a turning point, right? We are meeting this character of Cece, who I, I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about in this episode, but um, ends up being a very significant character in a number of ways for the series moving forward. Um, kind of a representation of, like, the worst the show could do in a lot of ways, both in terms of, like, their, um, you know, the way that they, the way that they handle mental illness, the way that they handle a transgender character, the way that they just handle wrapping up a mystery. Um, but it, it, it's, I really enjoy Cece. I mean, Cece is such an, a fun character. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I was actually really surprised, and, and we'll get into it, that there are seeds of Cece's eventual backstory in this episode, whether or not it's intended, they are there. I have that I have that same note when we get to that point. Uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting. And I think that um, I think that Cece is a delightful character, and I think that the good parts of Cece feed into a lot of the questions of identity that PLL during this period was was doing very interesting things with. Yes, I agree. And, and one of the one of the, the things that I wanted us to talk about a little bit later is, was it like, could Cece and Allison exist at the same time? Like when Allison came back, did it even make sense for Cece to still be a character on the show? Um, is it, it, do they become more or less powerful with it, if they both exist in the same place at the same time? Kind of how, how does that, how does that mirroring help or hurt those various storylines. So. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And I also think, uh, like, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there in, in just a few minutes, but um, the way that Hannah and Cece don't share any screen time in this episode, yeah. uh, which is interesting because both of them are so modeled around Allison, like, what, what would happen if they interacted with each other without Allison being, like, the nucleus uh, what what would that be like? So I think that I think that it's a very interesting question, and I think that we'll get to explore it a lot more as as we get to know Cece and as we get to go on some other adventures with her. Do we just random question? Do we ever directly see Cece and Mona interact? I mean, obviously we know that they interacted because of the whole dollhouse thing, 
But I don't think we... I don't think that, like, Vanessa and Janelle Parrish ever actually share a scene together. Um, I think that when... I think that in the um, finale of 6A, when we're, like, watching the explanation of everything on the the giant, like... Um, you know, the giant hologram screen of Explainometer. Uh, I think we see the scene where Mona is talking to Redcoat oh. and we see Charlotte turn around wearing a red robe. But that is the only time that I can think of off the top of my head. And I don't even really know that we would consider that interacting. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I think that those two, I, I, that always felt like a missed opportunity. But one of many. One of many. Um, shall we dive right in? Yes, let's. Okay. Um, so we begin in the Hannah is on the phone with Ashley. We learn that Ashley is out of town at a conference. Um, and Hannah is assuring her that she will be fine. No, Caleb will not be over. He has lost her number. Um, you know, the fact that Ashley would like leave Hannah home alone at, at this stage of the game is maybe not the best parenting choice, but uh, no sooner has Hannah hung up the phone after assuring her mom that everything will be fine than Wilden arrives. He is here at the back door to smarm about the fact that he needs Hannah's blood. Maybe it matches the blood on the anklet. It's the same blood type after all. Um, Hannah has a really great line when he says that he needs to talk to her with a parent present. And she says something about, well, that hasn't stopped you before. Um, he brings up the fact that she is known to be the person who slipped the note to Garrett's mom. And uh, there's just sort of some back and forth about like, there's going to there's gonna be a court order. He wants the blood. She's not going to give it up without a fight. It's funny because the liar's blood will become a regular thing that either A or the Rose of PD are after at various points in the series. Uh, but I feel like this is one of the first... Um, first times that like specifically the liar's blood is being sought after uh yes well there was also the blood um toby's sweater uh that we had during like season 1a and and 1b uh so yeah i feel like the yeah. there there's a lot of blood that like <laughs> occurs on the night of allison's disappearance for the fact that allison herself winds up not really being murdered <laughs> Well, and do you remember that whole thing? I think it's in season five where, like, there's the blood drive, which why the liars would ever give their blood <laughs> drive. It's like, come on, girls. But then they think that, like, Mike Montgomery is stealing their blood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's a werewolf, not a vampire, ladies. <laughs> Don't get it twisted. Right. <laughs> yes. But uh, props to Wilden for the way that he goes to the back door to, like, get kind of, like, creepily uh you know reinforce his power uh and his intimacy with the family that he doesn't come to the front door like right. a cop probably would but he comes to the the back door like he wants to get in there and get with her mom again uh and also uh the way that he says you know he he wants to get the he wants to get her blood specifically because a lot of other people in the world are o negative but they weren't found putting notes under someone's hospital bracelet. Well, actually putting a note under someone's hospital bracelet is weird, but I don't know of any current laws against it in the state of Pennsylvania. <laughs> very true. Very true. Yeah, it's a very Caleb move, isn't it? Coming to the back door. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about people who come to the back door in the Marin home as opposed to the front door. Um, 
Yeah. And I like that, you know, Hannah really puts up kind of a, an aggressive show against Wilton, against letting him in, against, uh, you know, giving him the blood, etc. But then as soon as she closes the door, we can see that she is pretty rattled. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and who wouldn't be? I mean, Wilton is Wilton coming around has never been good news for her. True. True. Uh, cut to the liars who are walking down the street together, which is nice because we haven't had a ton of group scenes in the more recent episodes. Uh, Hannah is theorizing that she is in the police's sights with this blood test and wonders what if it is actually her blood on the anklet. Uh, this is a good thing to worry about, I think, in a world. Uh, but Arya doesn't see how someone could get her blood without her knowing. Hannah points out that Emily has a whole night she doesn't remember and wants to know if Spencer has talked to Jason lately, since it seems like it's the De Laurentiis family putting pressure on the police again. Uh, Spencer has not spoken with him, but will soon. Hannah ends this conversation hilariously by announcing she can't talk about it anymore and she needs to go to school. <laughs> Which, like, shouldn't they all be going to school? If it's a school day? <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> um, do you want me to take us into the brew here? Oh, yeah, because they, I mean, they split off. The other liars are not going to class. They're going for a morning coffee. They're going to the brew, of course. Yes. I feel like Spencer, this is kind of that era where, like, when Spencer doesn't really have a storyline, her storyline is always like, I have to call Jason, or like, I've been waiting for Melissa to call me back. Or, you know, like, there's always like some family member that she's supposed to be tracking down. Um, yeah, this is kind of like a Spencer, a bit of a Spencer light episode. Oh, that's um, interesting that you say that because I feel like I feel like Emily is is kind of at, at a bit of loose ends in this episode. So it's interesting that you're calling out Spencer as having a lighter plot. I guess we'll see as we move along. I guess so. I guess so. Um, so the liars walk into the brew and they overhear a voice at the counter saying, take it from me, you're always better off with a really good lie. They, this like sets their alley spidey senses way, you know, tingling up way high. And they swivel just as this blonde swivels to face them. Uh, it's Cece Drake, who is like instantly the most Cece because she sees all the liars are staring at her. Uh, Aria takes the plunge and says that she reminds them of a friend of theirs. And Cece replies, I hope she's brilliant. Um, Aria identifies that it's Allison De Laurentiis and Cece kind of softens and identifies herself as Cece in a way where she clearly expected that they may have heard about her. Spencer introduces herself. Cece immediately brings up Melissa Hastings. Uh, oh my, that was uh, right. Chief, chief on top of, uh, of Cece's mind, clearly. Um, and says that Allie talked about all of them a lot. They seem pleased. Uh, Cece says that her family and Allison's family rented houses together in Cape May. They spent an intense couple of weeks together. She dated Jason. Uh, she seems a bit miffed when the liars reveal that they have not heard about her. Uh, Cece refers to Allison as a broken doll. She does not respond when Spencer asks why she moved back to Rosewood. But she does reveal that she works at a boutique across the street and makes a shoplifting reference to Aria, who very quickly throws Hannah under the bus by saying, you're probably thinking about Hannah. Um, Cece kind of swans off, and the liars are all very freaked out by how Allie-ish this girl is. 
Um, Emily makes a comment about it's like she was looking straight through you, like she knew your secrets. Um, so this is this is a really interesting moment. I mean, this is this is you know we've talked a lot about the identity work of PLL, but it, perhaps it's no more interesting than when it comes to CC, who is you know in her name CC Carbon Copy of Allison De Laurentiis in a lot of ways. Um, I think one of the things that I noticed here that you can't really not notice, especially once you know that CC is A, is that everything she's saying to the liars is a way of fishing for information. She's just she's just getting information from them with every single comment that she puts out to them. She and and you can say you know maybe she knew some of this off the bat or she's just trying to confirm hunches, but like you know that shoplifting reference. So now she knows Hannah's the one who shoplifts. She can like check that off in the you know the box in her mind. Um, it's it, she, later she'll do the same thing with Emily. Like it's really it's really impressive for game here. And there's some ways in which I almost feel like she's just too obvious as an agent. <laughs> well, I think that uh, you know the liars spend a lot of the first few seasons wondering if Allison might be a. And I feel like Cece is here to pick up Allison's mantle in so many ways. Like she mm. looks like Allison, she acts like Allison, she knows all their secrets like Allison. Uh, and I think that uh, being like the question of is she too obvious an A suspect is like also kind of a thing that always existed with the is Allison A argument. Uh, so I, I think it's just really interesting all the ways that she is picking up what like the, the threads that Allison left hanging when she departed. Uh, and also, I think that, um, you know, Spencer and Arya kind of get into it a little bit when Arya says, was that chick freakishly like Allie? And Spencer says, or was Allie freakishly like her? And she, you know, she says, like, the hip out, the head tilt, like, you know, the things that she was saying. Uh, so, like, I mean, I definitely think that Allie's persona was very much informed by Cece. But who is Cece being here? Is she being totally herself or is she being a version of itself herself that'll read the most like Allie to the liars? Well, that's a really good question, especially since it's it's almost like, you know, like Allie and Cece were like two vines of a tree growing together or something. Like their personalities were so kind of cultivated based on the other one that like who even is the original and who is the carbon copy, right? It's, it's so hard to know. And I, I think, you know, like... It's hard for me to say at this point whether I think Cece as a character was like a, a mistake or not because of everything that happened with Charlotte. It was so badly handled. But I do think that I, I don't know. I think that Cece always felt like there was the potential for much richer exploration than the show ever granted her. And as the character actually is within canon, I don't know that she's necessarily the most terribly necessary character oh i hate to hear you i love cc as a I, character i i, 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 I will say I, that i if they had not if they had not gone down the dead name every other sentence transgender villain route with this character uh i would have thought that it was a very interesting choice to have her be a uh if she were just allison's unacknowledged older sister uh, I think that that would I think that that would have been really interesting, uh, and I think that they could have done a lot with that. But of course, um, just just one of the things that if wishes were horses, the show would 
have a stampede of my thoughts about what it could have been. Um, but why, okay, why do you think that Cece wants to meet the liars face to face? Because she's already been acting as A at this point. Why does she want to meet them and, and be known to them in real life? That's a great question. I mean, I, I think... I think there is a certain amount of like seeing is believing, right? Like um, kind of making, making the monster real. You know, if she sort of sees the liars as these almost monstrous figures in a way. Um, and I think, I think it's also that Mona thing, right? Of like playing, you know, playing with the dolls up close is a lot more fun. It was a lot more fun for Mona to play with the liars when she was making herself in the inner circle with the liars. It's a lot more fun for Cece to, play with the liars when you know she can see her dolls up close hmm. Hmm. that's very interesting uh and then what do you make of as we were kind of discussing just a little bit before you- that hannah isn't in this scene right Han- yeah it's like could hannah and Cece even exist in the same place at the same time i don't i don't i don't necessarily know if they could <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's really interesting um, why, do you, why do you think that Cece makes it a point of meeting with the liars here? Oh, I think I think she's operating think she's very much in the Mona Alley space uh, of wanting to let them see one face, but not her true one. Like she's yeah. not introducing herself as Charlotte; she's introducing herself as Cece. She's not actually stating what her relationship to the dealer, you know, she's like lying to them a lot about like her family uh, rented a house on Cape May with like, she's giving them like an idealized version uh, of her past and her relationship with Allison and Jason. Well, I agree. And I, I also think that, that maybe more than just about any other character, I am going to say that I think Cece was probably written very open-ended at the beginning. I I don't believe that they had the whole Charlotte backstory in in play. I think though that they probably had had the thought like maybe she could be a secret De Laurentiis, maybe she could be a secret Hastings, like she was maybe related or maybe not. And I really do think that that is somewhat to the detriment of her character because I feel like she just always just feels like I, and again, I, I want to say, like, I love Cece, but I think that there's this this big sort of question mark quality that's looming over her in a way that isn't always the case with some other characters. I mean, maybe Prezra is another one that, that suffers from this because of the whole later backstory we find out. And so I think that there's just, it's everything is open-ended. So, like, we're watching this scene here, and it's like, we can read all of these motives and everything into it, but I don't even know if that was in the writer's head when they wrote it at the time. I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't, but I feel like it bears looking at now that we know where the story, you know, where, where the story goes. Um, Yeah. I I just think it's totally, I I think it's very, very interesting. uh, The CC that we, that we meet here. Yeah. Yeah. She's, 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 she's an enigma for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, at school, hours later than Hannah, probably, uh, <laughs> Aria enters her mother's classroom to give her some mail that came to the house. She questions Ella's dress uh, that she has hanging up on her coat rack, and Ella admits that she has a date. 
never one to shy away from intervention in her parents' love life, Arya asks for details. I will spare you any recitation of them because we know this date is going to be Pastor Ted. Oh man, like Arya, Arya just like, or Ella just like has this garment bag and she's like, I'm just going to unzip my fancy dress and hang it in front of my entire classroom and like her students are filing in and the dress is still there. Like, it's so weird. Yeah, like, do we know for sure that Ella has an apartment, that she's not just living in the air vents like Caleb used to? Because, like, her mail isn't coming to her new place. Her dress is just in this garment bag hanging in her classroom. Like, I I have some questions. Oh, God. I mean, Ella makes reference to that website that you made me join. Like, again, boundaries, Montgomery's boundaries. Um, She does have the funny line, though, where she's, asking for Arya's opinion and then she corrects herself and says why am I asking you you wear forks as earrings which is a great Arya a great line for Arya yeah there are a lot of jabs at Arya's earrings in this episode and I'm here for it I am too I am too I appreciate that she's wearing she's not wearing forks as earrings in this episode but she is wearing like these very um sharp looking like kind of weird rectangular neon green things on her ears that yeah as always so spencer is on her laptop in the courtyard uh she's looking up cc in the yearbook she sees that cc is written up as being uh the prom queen this is like one of those moments where later when decided on the backstory it's clear that they were like oh right cc's in the yearbook and so they came up with that ridiculous thing where she just you know shows up on yearbook day and lies about being prom queen but here's in the yearbook spencer adds cc's info into her weird alley time time map uh, we pull back and see the rest of spencer's laptop screen is full of this kind of a uh, mona-esque mini digital layer we've got like lots of um you know creepy images from the layer we've got like maps we've got timelines this is clearly a project that Spencer has been spending a lot of time on um, and a project that will probably make Mona feel very turned on. Um, of course, Toby has to throw water on the whole situation by plopping down beside Spencer and kind of sighing. She quickly closes her laptop, wants to know why she's been lying and avoiding him. She admits that uh, she and Jason found the anklet together. Toby calls into question Garrett's guilt. Spencer has a great line, why are you challenging me? And uh, Toby brings up that evidence can be distorted and taken out of context, um, which is true. And I mean, they probably should be questioning Garrett's guilt. Obviously, he didn't actually do it. But he says it in this, like, his, like, shitty pious Like, you really want Spencer to feel super bad about this and to prioritize him over everyone else. Uh, she bounces off to class without saying anything to him. Yeah, well, his whole uh, take on this is that being accused of murder has made him uh, less quick to pass judgment, which I think is a bunch of garbage because he is so judgmental of Spencer at every turn in this episode. Uh, so that's, that's kind of a lot. Uh, also, she slams her laptop shut so quickly upon his arrival what what would be your assumption if you were like walking up to your friend or significant other and they slammed what they were doing away so quickly and with that level of startle reflex? What would 
what would you assume they were doing? What do you think Toby assumes that Spencer is doing in this moment? I mean, I think the thought of like internet pornography would happen, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What wonder what I wonder is what Toby would think like Spencer's secret like like what he thinks like her secret like kinky porn that she doesn't want him to know that she's watching and that she's watching at school by the way like what he thinks that that would be and then like what it would actually be because those would be very two very different things I think. <laughs> it's true it's true i don't know i i think maybe he thinks she's like reading queer joe march fanfic again <laughs> <laughs> no that's just us <laughs> <laughs> oh my god but uh yeah, I their interlude of hetero pessimism here uh, is is just really like the straight couples in this episode do not do anything for me, and this is a, a prime example of that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, they are a real bummer at this point in the series. <laughs> they really are. Yes, yes, and now that Arya has talked to her mom and Spencer has had a confrontation with Toby, lo, the school day is over. That was fast, <laughs> Emily is now at work and, of course, is visited by Cousin Nate, who wants her to smell a candle that he got for Jenna. Uh, he wants to give Jenna a gift because he didn't bring one to her party, and they have a date date for that very night. Will Emily help him to shop? Jenna has told him they're such good friends. And Jenna had nice things to say about Maya, who Emily doesn't even think knew Jenna at all. Except Nate claims she sometimes gave Jenna rides home from school. So great, now I'm adding a Maya Jennifer to my wish list. <laughs> Nate insists that Emily call him on her break for this shopping mission that he has invented and now requires her to go on. And all of this is just clearly him thinking he's like doing an expert Meg move here. Like he's like, this is right out of like the, you know, the, the, yeah, like the negging playbook here of like, oh, I'm going to like make her shop for a gift for this other girl. And like, she'll realize how like, what hot stuff I am. Oh, that's totally what he's doing. He's choosing, he's choosing to date Jenna because he understands that Emily has so much like antipathy towards her that he is hoping that Emily will hate Jenna enough to abandon her gayness and decide to date him herself, like, to spite Jenna, which is, like, it's gross on so many levels. I I just, no, no amount of candles or scarves is going to make up for it. For oh, it, and it's going to get worse, too. Yeah, Nate, Nate weirdly has, like, a type. In the, like, weirdly, like, Nate and Noel Kahn seem to both have a type, and that type is uh, queer women, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But of course, as like, surprise, surprise, he had to take it a step too far um, or, or several. Um, Hannah and Aria arrive <clears throat> home at Hannah's house. Aria is worried about Cece. Hannah wants to, <clears throat> wants to know if you can cheat on a blood test, which is such a great Hannah line. But lo, there's a Luigi board on Hannah's counter. Uh, Hannah immediately goes to touch the planchette and immediately gets a cut. Arya's like, Hannah, what are you doing? And on the other side of the planchette is an A note. See how easy it is for me to get your blood. Ah, uh, so good. So good. Um, and I mean, this just freaks Hannah all the way out. 
Uh, and Arya wants to know, like, you know, what is it? What's going on? And then Hannah reluctantly admits that this planchette is the item that she buried in Allison's coffin. Which, boom, boom, boom. which again is so weird. Like, why they buried absolutely the weirdest things with Allison's <laughs> earrings from this horrible thing that, like, that this like horrible, you know, mission that she and Allison did that she felt all this, you know, guilt and turmoil about. Hannah buries the planchette from like that time that she thought she saw ghost Allison. <laughs> what did we ever find out what Spencer and Emily buried? I was just thinking that, and I don't I don't think that we do. Maybe we will as as time goes on. What what do you think? Do you think Spencer like uh, dumped a bottle of pills in Allie's coffin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She put she put in like the rock that you know that <laughs> she like hit Allison over the head with or something. And Emily probably put in like you know. I mean, Emily probably put in a copy of Great Expectations, but like also maybe like the bra that Allison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was like it was like a hollowed out copy of great expectations <laughs> that had like the bra stuffed inside of it and then the cover glued shut that's that's probably what it was yeah yeah just like the most horrible horrible things well it's interesting how like clearly mrs de Laurentiis offered that to, i mean i would imagine that mrs de Laurentiis offered that to them as like a oh you know you can take up like a part of her or a part of you guys can go with her and like it's kind of this like spiritual beautiful thing and clearly the liars all took it as like no we are literally burying these terrible things that we have done with our friend like they are never coming back up well yeah it's it's very um it's very egyptian like if ali in the afterlife like needs a pair of earrings to like bust up someone's affairs <laughs> she'll have them right there with her very considerate Yes, yes, she will. Uh, but so, it, so Arya is like demanding to know what's the deal with this Ouija board, uh, and that takes us to a Vandermeeren flashback. Oh my goodness! Um, Vandermeeren is having a sleepover and playing with the Ouija board. Mona and her cousin contacted a ghost over the summer, and it knew all kinds of freaky stuff. I love the idea of Mona harnessing the spirit world for her own purposes. Uh, and I also love how them playing with the Ouija board really fits into the pattern of Mona trying to scare Hannah, presumably so they can cuddle, uh, that we see later with Mona reading her all of those Poe stories. Anyway, they're asking the spirit world about Allison, and then Hannah thinks that she sees uh, live or dead or ghost Allison standing right outside on the patio yes oh i love this too i love that hannah's first question is she wants to know if sean still has his v card and mona like takes five minutes to like look hannah up and down practically licks her lips and is like you don't need to confront you ask the spirit weird girl to like know the answer to that question um and yeah i just i love the idea like it this so seems like something that mona would be into because there's kind of that you know you know oh like oh it's just somebody manipulating it or like oh no this is actually like dark stuff that people shouldn't play around with and i i just feels like at this perfect it lives at this perfect intersection where it's so something that mona would be into and would be into as you said scaring hannah with 
Yeah, yeah, I do. I do really, uh, really like it, especially. And when you're talking about that, like, does Sean still have his V card? I love Mona kind of acting like we are not bothering the spirit world with that nonsense. (laughs) I just wanted Mona to just get so exasperated and be like, are we still pretending that Sean is not gay? Like, my goodness um yes so then back in the present day aria theorizes that mona hired somebody to stand outside that day um hannah into the trash like just holding um aria says that this proves that mona must be in contact with the a outside of radley because how would they have known about this whole event um, Hannah points out that she's not allowed in to visit Mona, so Arya says that she will do it. Um, Arya is so determined without Prezra around, as always. And then the capper on this scene is a potted plant hits the back window um, of the Marin kitchen, and Hannah will be sleeping at Arya's house tonight. <laughs> yes. Uh, shout out to the uh, broken planter on the back porch. I always thought that might have been a clue that Ren was A, uh, because, of course, he broke the planter at the Hastings house back in season one. Yeah, I I feel like wasn't that, I feel like that was a thing that Heather Hogan was like obsessed with for years that we never found out the answer to that one. And she was always like, what about the broken? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's, it's hard on houses and planters in Rosewood, blown up, cars driven through them, broken all over patios. Lots of shrubbery torn up by all the graves that are dug in the Hastings backyard. So, or the it's little rough. it's it's after- rough on your flora and fauna. Yes, indeed, it is. Yes. Uh, next thing we see, Jason is jogging, and we can tell that he's sad because he's wearing a shirt. <laughs> he and Spencer talk about him being a screw up, how he's done playing detective. Uh, he's not a crime solver. He's not a lawyer. Uh, His dad is coming back to town and he's got to meet the plane. Uh, Spencer drops the info about Cece Drake being back in town. Jason says everything with Cece is intense and he does not contradict Spencer's kind of presumption that things between them ended on a bad note. He runs off to shower uh, before he has to go pick up his dad at the airport. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing because like Spencer's very apologetic in this scene. Jason's upset and um, it, it's interesting because it's like neither of them are at all open to the possibility of acknowledging that anybody other than Garrett could be the killer. You know, they're both so much operating from this place of like, he is still the killer, he is still the killer. And what I think so interesting about that is like, they both think that they could be the killer. You know, Spencer thinks she could be, so does Jason. Um, and I actually think that this whole scene would be a great misdirect if Jason was in fact the killer. Mm. Yeah, I think the stuff with Jason and his dad is very interesting in this episode because a fact that we have and that Jason has and Spencer has is that Jason is not Kenneth DeLaurentis' son. Uh, So his, like, relentless desire to seem worthy of being Ken's son is, like, interesting to watch play out. Well, yes, the theme of paternity is a very interesting one in this episode when you consider Charlotte. Um, Mm -hmm. Because weirdly charlotte's dad is in this episode but not maybe in the way that we might think because charlotte's dad is pastor ted which is weird and 
Charlotte's <laughs> father figure, Kenneth De Laurentiis, is also in this episode. Yes. Uh, and is, as always, the worst. Uh, but before we get there, we are at the, what is it, Diva Dish? Is that what this place is called? It might be. I called it the boutique. The boutique? Um, it's very weird. It's a very weirdly decorated shop. There's like a three-eyed baby on a back wall. Like it's, 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 it's got some character. Um, Cece is showing different gift options to Nate and a very checked out Emily who is completely being held hostage by this interaction. Um, when Emily seems lukewarm, Nate insists that they keep shopping. Uh, Cece like clearly both wants the dirt on this situation and also is like sick of dealing with Nate. And so she sends him, him away um, inquiring to Emily about who he's buying for. Um, and this is like one of those moments where like Cece is just fishing all over the place for all this information, but she's doing it in this way where the liars are just opening up to her. Um, Cece makes a comment about like, well, if you are not interested in him, then you must be blind or, and Cece does the, or Emily does this great hair toss of lesbian acknowledgement that clues Cece in on exactly who she is. She says, ah, you're the one, the one with the giant crush on Allie. Um, Cece wants to know what the deal is with Jenna. Nate calls Emily over and holds up an incredibly ugly scarf and a pair of earrings that he says Maya had something like. Um, Emily, like her spidey senses tingle, but not enough when she uh, says that, you know, she bought those earrings right before Maya died. How would Nate know about them? He plays off this knowledge by grossly insinuating that he wouldn't have to do all of this if the hottest girl in Rosewood was available or interested in guys. Oh, I'm so sorry that Emily's lesbianism is such an inconvenience to you, good sir. Um, Cece saves this interaction for us all by coming up with the most sincere voice saying, you totally picked my favorite. Um, also, like, there are some serious Emily CC vibes here that I had not remembered. And I'm wondering if we're meant to be reading something into that. Oh, I mean, I think that Cece is taking over the Allison role for everyone. Like, that's her goal. So I think that that's part of it. She's taking up the mantle of girl who is maybe or maybe not interested in Emily, but who wants to be really compelling to her. Also, I love the way that we see Cece manipulate the men that she's around. Like, she calls Nate handsome to his face. She's like, I'll tell you what, handsome, you go look at those scarves. And then she, like, She's a great salesperson. She tricks him into buying an extremely ugly scarf by acting like it is, you know, the the height of, you know, feminine fashion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She's you can you can totally see how Cece like works the clientele here at the Diva Dish. <laughs> well, also, this is a scene where Emily should be extremely suspicious of two people and instead is like completely not suspicious of anyone like well, uh the only person she's suspicious of is jenna who's not even in the scene who's not even in this episode yeah. like despite the fact that like she she's sort of like um you know she's just just off screen hovering on the edges the whole time because she's motivating a lot of the action yes exactly exactly it's it's pretty funny yeah but so um one of the things that I found uh, kind of funny, like watching this episode now, is the way that the liars never press Cece for more information about Allison. Like when Cece meets them in the coffee shop, she mentions that Allie was going through such a rough time 
when she was at Cape May, she was like a broken doll. And even though that's like kind of new information to them, nobody like follows up on that at all. And I cannot believe that there is a world in which Emily Fields hears this woman say, oh, you're the one that had like a giant crush on Allie. And Emily says like, Allie told you about that, but then doesn't follow up with what did she say? <laughs> yeah, she just left that hang there between them. I, I mean, I understand playing it cool, but that complete lack of curiosity, it is, that is, that is not the reaction of a human, I feel, much less a queer human, in my opinion. Well, much less Emily, like, you know, I mean, her, her whole situation with Allie is so fraught. Like, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting that there is absolutely no follow-up to that whatsoever. Also, do you think that Allison did tell Cece that she had this friend who had a huge crush on her? Or do you think that Cece understood that from being around Allison and hearing the kind of things that Allison said about Emily? I think that that is much more likely. And also that Cece knew that the feelings were mutual, um, but is framing it from the standpoint of Emily was the one with this big giant crush on Alice. Well, yeah, especially because Cece was part of Allison's caper against Paige. And that I... caper makes no sense unless Allison wants Emily for herself. Oh my God. When we get to that episode, we're going to have a lot to say about that. <laughs> We will indeed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It. Yeah. The, the. If this was Spencer in this scene, that that line would not be going unchecked. <laughs> oh. Oh. Let's see. Oh. Oh no. Elsewhere in untenable heterosexuality this week, Ella is at the coffee shop waiting for her date to start. Uh, she's talking to the man behind the counter who has just brought some scones out of the oven and offers her one. Uh, the scones, croissants, some kind of baked good. Uh, they banter, and she asks if Emily will be around if she didn't want to have a first date in front of her. Uh, he asks how she knows Emily. Ella mentions that she's her daughter's best friend. He says uh, he isn't out front very often, but everyone has abandoned him, Emily presumably, to go shopping. Uh, and she orders a decaf before Pastor Ted, in all his wet blanket glory, strolls on in. Uh, he despite the fact that they were planning to meet in a coffee shop for this date, is a little thrown that Ella has ordered a coffee. Uh, he then suggests uh, leaving the coffee shop and going to get ice cream at a cart outside instead of their planned activity of having coffee together. And I mean, it's going to be a bad first date anyway because it's him, but I think changing the plan at the literal last second after the person that you're there to go on the date with has already bought their coffee, that is a really bad move. I agree. But then Ella makes it even weirder because, like, she has no <laughs> cup of coffee. Like, but she's like, oh, I just wanted a sip. And her new cup, presumably hot, delicious coffee that she's just gotten, she throws in the trash. Made more sense if she had gotten like uh if she you know we're staying here and she got like a you know like a glass mug or something like that would have kind of made sense but like I don't know that was just a that was a that was a weird 
a weird writing choice on everybody's part. Well, it was. And also, I, I don't really see like what would have been wrong with sitting there having coffee, chatting for a while. And then if you were getting along, going out to the ice cream cart afterwards, like, I, I don't know. I, I just think that this is, uh, this is not a good move on Pastor Ted's part. It does not bode well for the rest of their interaction. No. And it's also a classic Pastor Ted of like, I've got the plan. I know what's up. Like, he's, oh, he's so annoying. Um, we're at Radley. And it's like, because it's Arya's first time here, it has to be like so extra spooky gothic, like creepy, like creepy shots of people. There's like people screaming. I think at one point there's like a cat yowling in the background and like a storm overhead that just overlaps. Arya here, she's super freaked out, but Mona is now permitted to have visitors. Arya just has to leave everything sharp uh, at the front, including her earrings. Arya's earrings are getting a lot of attention this week. Um, Arya reluctantly gives up her earrings and walks in to Mona, who kind of coolly greets her. Arya says that they need to talk, uh, but their visit is going to be supervised by the nurse. Mona smirks and asks if she would like to play a game while shuffling some cards. Yes, I love that Arya's version of Radley is like, person screaming in the distance, cat yowling, dog barking, like, yeah, it's like, you know, uh, I, you kind of expect that, like, any door might hold, like, the gentleman demons from Buffy, yeah. and or, like, the Hound of the Baskervilles, like, any of those might be, like, floating around in this place uh, in Arya's vision, and it would not be a surprise. It's like all all murder and mayhem from here on out. Yeah, there are definitely ghost waltzes in the basement, 100% for sure. Oh, completely, completely. <laughs> uh, now we get Hannah, who is walking down the street on the phone with Spencer, asking if her mom has been able to block the court order for Hannah's blood. Uh, Spencer's like, she'll try, but it's going to take more than an afternoon. And when Hannah freaks out about the word try, Spencer says... Well, this is her mom they're talking about. A try is as good as a win. Uh, and I would just like to observe that it is a clear conflict of interest if Veronica is still representing Garrett to also try to suppress this court order for Hannah's blood to see if it matches the anklet. But, you know, whatever, Veronica. You do you, Hastings. Uh, Hannah uh, is, is doing the thing where she's talking on the phone to Spencer as she's actually walking to meet Spencer uh, at a table at a sidewalk cafe. Uh, she sits down only to start freaking out all over again at the sight of Allison's dad getting out of a car with Jason. Uh, Spencer does not understand what is behind all of this panic, so Hannah pretends to calm down somewhat unconvincingly. Yes. Um, over at the brew where Emily is not working, just hanging out, um, she is sitting with Nate and she tells him that Jenna dated Garrett. Clearly, she's hoping that this news will make him, you know, uh, feel suspicious of Jenna. But instead, he says that Jenna could have easily been Garrett's next victim. And that Emily is a good friend for telling him. Uh, Emily doesn't really elaborate on any of this, but she seems uneasy. Yeah, he also gets handsy with her when he says she's such a good friend. He's got his, like, hand kind of squeezing her knee. But also the way uh, that... When he when he learns that Jenna used to date Garrett, uh, he doesn't see that as a sign of evil, and he makes that remark like, 
Jenna could have been his next victim. Uh, do you think that Cece's trick later in this episode may have saved Jenna's life? Do you think that Nate would have dated her and then when Garrett got out of jail, potentially murdered her to hang that on Garrett and get Garrett to like take the fall for all of the killings all over again? Oh, that's a really, really good theory. I think maybe so. I think the maybe- way the way he says that, like knowing that Nate is actually the killer, is like, hmm, like lining up some lining up some plans here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Nate, Nate Saint Germain. Also, is Emily a ghost in this episode? Please discuss. She is only at the brew whenever Nate comes to visit and never when Ella is visiting. Ella visits the brew like two or three times in this episode and Emily is never there. And yet Emily is working like this entire afternoon. Maybe it's like, maybe it's like there's like, like two parallel brews and it's like Ella and like the lake house. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Like they're just never in the same place at the same time. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Cause later she's like locking up the brew when Cece is locked up the dish. Yes. Yes. Cece. We'll we'll get there, but Cece, who's apparently worked like a 12 hour shift (laughs) at the boutique. (laughs) <laughs> oh man uh, yep yep um <laughs> on a park bench pastor ted is going on and on about himself it's fine to talk about yourself on a first date it is a getting to know you activity but he asks ella zero questions about herself so it all seems pretty one-sided um there's a passage in carol anshaw's novel seven moves where a closeted queer character is describing her relationship with her beard. And she says, he's just such a wet blanket that people look at him and suddenly they just don't care. (laughs) This encapsulates my feelings about Pastor Ted quite perfectly. Ella also does not seem to like him or his method of eating ice cream. No, I mean, he is just, he is so delicious. Like the, the story that he's telling ends with the line, I was there, so they asked me to officiate. Um, like, it's just, it's just bad. It's just bad. Well, he's also, he's, like, talking about, like, how wet it was in, like, Thailand in September. And, like, Ella makes an allusion to some other story he told about, like, what was he doing? He was doing some kind of water sport, like, bo- boogie boarding was, or, like, or something. Pastor. He, he, she was like, I've never heard somebody who, like, talked about hearing the call to become a pastor while boogie boarding oh my goodness yeah so i i feel like pastor ted like he was also telling uh when he was with ashley at the church dance and he was talking about like being on the summit of some kind of like nearby mountain or something (laughs) like he's the kind of guy who is like He's actually never doing anything interesting in the present moment. So he like tells a lot of stories about interesting things that he may or may not have done in the past. Um, I, I kind of like, like looking at him in this episode, now that we know that he is Charlotte's biological father, maybe Pastor Ted is a pathological liar. Like, is he even a pastor? Has he ever been to Thailand? I have a lot of questions. Well, he also has some obnoxious line in here too, where he's like, "If you're ever in Phuket at in Phuket in September, bring a raincoat." It's like, okay, dude, we get it. You've lived a life. Like, 
things. You've experienced some places. Like, you have a passport. Like, give it a rest. You've wound up in Rosewood, Pennsylvania, just like everybody else. So let's... Let's, let's eat, cool. eat, eat your ice cream like a human being and let's move on well I, I also feel like there's a very dark reading of this too that like why is he in Rosewood like he could he could theoretically be anywhere like is, is he like what's this guy's deal like he, he could be officiating uh, he could be officiating weddings in all kinds of far flung locations exactly yeah like why do you to be here buddy yeah Yeah, do you um well and also but like here's the other thing despite all of his stories about these places that he's been he was definitely in rosewood like 18 years ago and he was definitely in rosewood like i don't know five years ago running that youth camp that lucas was at so like i i don't know has he just taken a lot of vacations i i have questions wait is cc only supposed to be 18 no, I guess she's older than that. But like, she. But Lucas was at that camp when he was like, God, a kid. We can't start talking about the timeline. We'll never. No, we'll, no, we'll we'll fall into we'll fall into a terrible hole. Um, but yeah, I, the point is, he's. It's not like it's not like he did all this stuff and just washed up in Rosewood yesterday. He obviously has a history of being here. Yes, yes, and 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 sleeping with with women who may or may not be twins evil twins (laughs) right um so let's see uh pastor ted ah there we go um so hannah approaches kenneth de laurentis on the street uh he is immediately like very chilly with her he's like hello hannah um she tells him that she's thought about what to say to him for a long time She's sorry. She knows that their family was going through a lot and whatever she did didn't help. Um, But she wants to assure him that she's not involved in what's happening now. She wants to see Allie at peace. He cuts her off saying, you know, how how dare she say all of this? A friend would never do what she did. And she has only gotten crueler with age. Yeah. This is our first look at Kenneth, really. Uh, our first close look at the actor who's going to be Kenneth for um, the rest of the time that Kenneth is important. Uh, and he's got this expensive looking suit and he has a human face that reminds me of the Sam Eagle Muppet. Uh, <laughs> and this is like the second line reading. Cause we, like, they don't tell us yet what Hannah did. We're not going to find that out until a little bit later. Uh, and this is the second line reading in the episode where I feel like it was sort of weird like, when, when Cece says, like, we had a couple of intense weeks together about her and Allison, where yeah. at, at the first line reading, it's like, are, is, is there an implication that, like, maybe they had an affair or something? Because, yeah. like, this situation with Kenneth, where Hannah is, like, just this vision of, like, nerves and loveliness going over to talk to him after she's been, like, so nervous and flustered about him being back, and then him just reacting to her with, like, so much coldness and hatred and like a friend would never have done what you did where it's like do do you think that's deliberate are we supposed to at this moment suspect that maybe hannah had some kind of involvement with Allie's father oh interesting i i don't think i mean i guess you could interpret it that way i don't think that we're meant to think that i think that we're meant to think that hannah might have like i don't know 
been involved with the anklet or like done something like somehow done in, in that way where they're where they'll occasionally tease like what if one of the liars had something to do with Allison's death that maybe we're meant to think that um I I have to say like the Rose Watch TLL2 podcast they had a lot to say about Kenneth and one of the things that they said which is I just I can't get it out of my head whenever I see him so I'm just gonna have to say it is that they said that he always looks like he just drank a glass of his own urine before every scene. <laughs> I it up all the time. And now that is just all I can think about when I see this, this man's face. So apologies to the actor, but like it is kind of an apt description. It is. It is. Now I have a question. We were talking about like Hannah having formed herself very much around Allison and Allison possibly having formed herself very yes. much around Charlotte. When Kenneth is looking at Hannah standing in front of him and he says the words I thought it was just a childish prank but you seem to have gotten crueler with age who is he talking to is he talking to Hannah Marin who's standing in front of him is he talking to Allison possibly dead possibly alive or is he talking to Charlotte I think that's an excellent question um yeah I think I think that a lot of the we are seeing the very early building blocks of the man who was, you know, Charlotte's um, Charlotte's father in a lot of ways. You know, I, just his 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 own cruelty and his own sort of unwillingness to bend and his own, um, you know, process of just blaming um, everybody for for everything. Um, and yeah, I think that there is a way in which he is he is kind of talking to to Charlotte here. Um, and, and maybe even talking to, um, to, to Allison, certainly, but also maybe even talking to Jessica. Mm, mm. Yeah. Cause a lot of what he's feeling about Hannah is wrapped up in Jessica. So yeah, yeah. that's a great point. And also that we know that like, I don't know if we ever get confirmation. I know we do get confirmation, right? That, that Kenneth knew about Jessica's affair with Peter. Yes, I th- I yeah. think we do. I think we do yeah. eventually. And that that uh, maybe wrapped up in there too, in a way. Hmm. Uh, over at Radley, Mona is teaching Aria how to build a house of cards. Aria mentions that she's sorry Hannah couldn't make it tonight. Uh, this is the magic word, and it is enough for Mona to make her orderly go fetch her meds. And then she whispers to Aria she has 25 seconds to get to it. 24, 23, Aria tells her about the planchette and that Hannah's in trouble. And if Mona knows who is doing this, she needs to tell her right now if she cares about Hannah. If she ever did, she'll let them know who was behind this. Mona angrily protests that her friendship with Hannah was real. And Aria digs in on Hannah being, quote, the whole reason you did what you did, right? Well, Arya Montgomery certainly seems to understand the queer subtext of Vandermeeren. Does she not? Yes, I love Arya here. I mean, first of all, it just feels so Arya to me that she would make it about a personal connection versus like Spencer, who'd, you know, come guns blazing with with threats or Emily, who would, you know, probably bring in, you know, physical violence or something where Mona's. <laughs> I love that Arya makes it about the personal connection and about the friendship. So that's kind of, that's where Aria comes from. Um, and, and about the romance, you know, I mean, I think that there's a real sense of, 
of the romance here that Arya sees. And I just love, you know, if your friendship was real, our friendship was real. Um, I love how Mona turns this whole thing into like a Mission Impossible movie. Like she's like, you've got 25 seconds. To make it. <laughs> you know? And uh, I just, I, I really, I really love this interaction. It, in retrospect, I'm so sad that Mona and Arya didn't get to share more scenes together because I think that these two are really great together. I love it when they get to have a scene with one another. Oh, man. I, I completely, completely agree. Um, Mona, though, tells Arya she has nothing to offer. She says it isn't her. And then as she's led away at the end of visiting hour, she adds, tell Hannah, I'm sorry. And one of the things that I love about the scene is that Mona is like, like Mona has so many faces. There are so many uh, multitudes contained within Mona. And of course, Mona is also, you know, adrenalized hyper-reality. She's A, she's omniscient. Um, it's rare. It's rare that you see anyone, like there are times when Spencer is trying to push Mona's buttons, but really it backfires and Mona is manipulating the situation to push Spencer's buttons all along. Uh, we do see Aria push a button here with Mona. Uh, we we do like I I don't think that that's Mona play acting. I think when Mona hisses, it was real. That's very genuine. Oh, I agree. I agree, and I think Aria is really um, Aria is highlighting Hannah here in a way that a lot of people don't when they talk about Mona being a. And I think that that really strikes a nerve for Mona. Mm-mm. So outside Radley, um, Hannah is there waiting for Aria, wondering what happened. Um, Aria, who is always the, like, she's so easily swayed by emotions. She's always the person where it's like, she has one emotional interaction with somebody and she's like, maybe they're good. Maybe they're not A. Maybe like none of this really happened. She is wondering if maybe Mona isn't behind this. I honestly feel like in this moment, she's like, she could be convinced to think that like Mona was never even a in the first place. Like she's, she's, she's on team Mona here. Um, or in a matter of speaking, um, Hannah wants to sneak in. She has had it. Uh, R says that she will come to friends. Don't let friends sneak into insane asylums alone. I'm still not sure. Like it's never really explained how they're going to sneak in. They say that the nurses are going to change shifts, but like visiting hours are over. And it's not even like they're dressing up in the candy striper outfits or anything. So, like, what's the plan here? I mean, security at Radley is so lax. I, I mean, <laughs> a- apparently they're basically their plan is to just walk back in. Exactly, exactly. And they're like, because it's a different nurse, nobody will suspect a thing. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> um. So Emily is leaving work with a coffee and meets up with Cece, who is apparently put in the world's longest boutique shift uh, as she is now locking up Diva Dish. Uh, She jokingly asks if Emily delivers regarding the coffee. Uh, Emily's like, oh, no, that's for me. And Cece identifies it as an Americano straight. Well, the coffee anyway. Uh, Then the closed captioning tells me she chuckles softly. (laughs) (laughs) They are quite flirty uh, because, as I mentioned, Cece is a stand-in for every version of Allison. Uh, When she learns that Emily talked to Nate about Jenna and he was not deterred, Cece suggests that they exchange phone numbers. 
Uh, she steals Jenna's number out of Emily's phone and enters it into her own, then calls Jenna and pretends to be Nate's angry girlfriend, who threatens to scratch Jenna's eyeballs out. Emily is pleading with her to stop from the moment she realizes what's happening, but Cece operates on the alley principle that it's easier to seek forgiveness than permission, and actually, she doesn't care that much about forgiveness, really. So, problem solved. She strolls off, calling Emily Americano over her shoulder. Yes, it is very flirty. Um, and it, it's interesting because it makes me think about, like, oh, man, like, the, the different versions that CC could have become, like, if the writers had made, had not necessarily in a better or worse way, but had just made a different choice to, um, like, even if they had decided, you know what, Allison is dead and Cece is going to be this new Allison character. Like, what an interesting dynamic that would have been. Like, if Cece and Emily had started dating, you know, like, what that could have been like. Um, yeah, it's just, it feels like there are so many different places her character could splinter off to at this point, And um, that's just, like, one more road not taken. Yeah, and I, I love seeing the scene because Cece is doing a very alley move. She's solving the problem through manipulation, and we see the ways in which Emily is, like, objectively, outwardly horrified, but inwardly kind of grateful and compelled by, uh, by this tactic. Totally, totally. Well, I think that something that... CC is doing here that's such an alley move is she's letting Emily kind of open a window into being a little bit of a bad girl herself. And I think that that's something that is, and it's, it's actually exactly what Mona did too with the whole, um, the whole thing at the, the truth up day. Um, and I think that as we have seen and we'll continue to see like that really turns Emily on, like that really gets her going is, is sort of, a little bit of a, you know, being invited to the dark side. It, it's, it's, it's scary and exciting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I completely agree. Um, Ella makes a bad choice. It's, it's, it's intended to be a good choice, but it ends up being a bad choice. She comes back to the brew looking for Emily. You just missed her, Ella. She's off in the other version of the little cap. <laughs> um, Instead, she finds Zach, who is here with a leather jacket on and is going to kind of smirk about Ella's bad date and to offer her pastries um, and flirt with her, flirt about the fact that there's nothing wrong with her age. She giggles, um, and we learn that he owns the brew, which she seems to really like, that he's not just a barista. He's like a business owner. But Yeah, they, they both chuckle about that, like, Oh, ha ha ha! Of course, she'd never date just a server. But oh, if he's a if he's a member of the property class, then that's just a horse of a whole nother color. Right? First dates are all about bonding over your mutual interests, and we're both interested in classism. <laughs> well, also, I'm uh, I'm curious about the dynamics of this guy with Toby and the loft building. Like, is Toby building his loft? Because wasn't the thing that the guy that he, Toby was building a loft for the for the person who owned the brew? Is that or did I make that up? 
I mean, no, I I think that you're right because it's definitely above the brew because that's where Ezra winds up living. But then there was that woman who was interested in the loft or some beams he was putting in. And also, doesn't doesn't Zach own like a castle that they're going to go live in eventually? So I, I don't know. Maybe Toby's building the castle. I'm not sure. The like muffin castle in Switzerland or whatever it is. It's like a castle made out of gingerbread and cheese. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. <laughs> That's right. Um, and he probably has like a you know a, a creditor cabin like somewhere in you know off the coast of Maine or something as well because it's kind of what you. <sighs> yeah, man. So the lax security uh, at Radley, which we mentioned before, is truly out of control as Arya and Hannah wander unobserved, except by the yowling cat and barking <laughs> dog in the distance. Uh, there's probably like there's probably like other noises that we couldn't identify. Like there's probably like a monkey screech or you know a, a coyote howling that that may have been cut. Um, but they are wandering the hallways uh, unobserved and heading for Mona's room. Aria is assigned as lookout, a job people keep giving her that I feel she is uniquely unqualified for. Uh, but Hannah goes in and tries to get some info from Mona. She says she's being set up for killing a friend and that Allie's dad is back in town. Aria abandons her post as lookout after two seconds, bursting in and saying a nurse was coming. Uh, and then Aria plays bad cop slash the muscle uh, to try to force Mona to talk. Mona immediately starts dropping hints about Mr. De Laurentiis, and Arya demands to know what on earth Mona is talking about. Yeah, I love the way Mona plays this, where she um, she makes this about a secret between her and Hannah. She's like, should we tell her? Do you want me to tell her? Like, does Arya know? Like, immediately, they are the, they are the circle, and Arya is on the outside. Um, and we go to this flashback where Mona and Hannah are walking in town, Mona is explaining her code to Hannah. We take the first letter of a word and begin a new word. So what is it? She She's something under trees? She lives under trees. She lives under trees is if they want to talk about somebody who's a slut. Um, you know, great to, great to have a code that allows you to slut shame in private. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so this is like the perfect A code, right? Because it allows you to talk about people right in front of them. Um, Hannah, though, is distracted and not in the mood as she sadly regards one of the alley missing posters. Just then, Kenneth De Laurentiis screeches up in his car and bursts out, screaming to Hannah about, you gave her hope. Stay away from my family. You know, how could you do this? Um, and Jason is kind of trying to to calm him down. Um, when we come back from the flashback, we learn finally this whole backstory, which is that um, Hannah called Mrs. D after the whole, you know, uh, contacting Allie from the spirit realm situation um, and told her that Allie was alive. Three days later, they found Allison's body. Um, or There's something in here about ruining Hannah's life. Somebody has, Hannah has a line about this is going to ruin my life or something like that. And I was like, I, I don't really know how this would ruin Hannah's life. Um, but then we learned that like, while Hannah was having this flashback, Mona just left. Like they were both, and Aria was just like in flashback mode and like, Mona just bounced. Um, and then we have this great misdirect as Hannah asks, she says, you know, please tell me that you still have your keys. 
and we cut to a swerving car. Yes, yes. Uh, this is a. I was thinking about uh, this flashback and uh, the way that it's a Vandermeeren flashback, and I was thinking that um, I I believe that this is true. We'll have to like check me on it as we as we go along. But I feel like pre time jump, the only flashbacks that we ever get that don't directly involve Allison are always Vandermeeren. Oh. That's an interesting, that's an interesting concept. We will have to keep tabs on that. Yeah, I think it's true. We get a few uh, post-time jump that don't involve Allie or Mona. Uh, like we get the flashbacks of the, the boyfriends that the liars have and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that's true. And I think that that's interesting in the way that it places uh, a lot of importance on the Vandermeeren relationship. Uh, but also during that scene, uh, during that scene in the flashback where Mr. De Laurentiis is shouting at Hannah, um, we also have Jason uh, who is like sheepishly trying to calm his dad down and or hustle him into the car. So we get kind of another glimpse of their relationship there. God, what an awful father Kenneth De Laurentiis is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Jason got the short end of the stick twice. Like, <laughs> Peter Hastings and Kenneth De Laurentiis, neither of them going to win Father of the Year anytime soon. Uh, But yeah, so we we get this car swerving down the streets of Rosewood, uh, also driving sedately down the streets of Rosewood, one Spencer Hastings, who sees the wildly driven vehicle uh, as it cuts around her and blows through a stop sign. She recognizes Jason as the driver and follows him. Just down the street, he crashes into a parked car and sits behind the wheel, groggy and disoriented and drunk. Spencer leaves her car with the doors wide open, lights on, engine running. Uh, She tells Jason the police will be there any second. Uh, She indoctrinates him with the Hastings family motto, this never happened. She shoves him into the passenger seat and drives him and his car away from the site of the crash. Why do you think Spencer makes this choice. Jason is not even in any condition to ask her to. Where does this come from? Is she just protective of him? Uh, is this just how the Hastings handle a crisis? Like, what's what's going on? I have to say that this plot development does not ring very true for me in terms of something that Spencer would do. Like, I, I get that Spencer has this sort of um, almost like desperate, it seems like, desire to kind of uh, align herself with Jason as 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 the one family member that she feels some kind of connection to. But the way that she handles this, um, to me, it just feels like building blocks to get us to the place later where like Toby is going to have to cover for her and then they're kind of in on the secret together. But I, I am not a fan of this plotline. I think it makes Spencer look kind of stupid and I hate that it puts her in a position of Toby needing to save her and I think that she like weirdly takes it to this place of like Jason will lose everything but like he's a white man in Rosewood and most white men in this town have lost less for doing more so I don't know I'm I'm not a huge fan of this yeah like what consequences would Jason face I he would get a DUI 
yeah. his license would be suspended. Um, maybe he would have a harder time working as like whatever his businesses of of youth counseling or whatever but like he's a recovering alcoholic he's still recovering like if he is you know if he has made a mistake here he's that's part of recovery like and he's a known recovering alcoholic like it's not his 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 alcoholism has been in any way a secret um it's like i mean everybody in town knows about it so it's like it yeah i don't I don't really understand this and I don't really understand why Spencer deals with it the way that she deals with it. Well, it also, um, it also seems like maybe because he was talking before about seeming like a failure and his father being in town, it seems like what Spencer is really trying to save him from is parental disappointment, which like, I, I understand that Spencer feels like that's a fate worse than death, but like Jason was driving drunk and he should face the consequences for that. Like Spencer, Spencer thinks that she's helping him, but she's really just enabling him in this, in this particular scenario. Yeah. And, and also just putting both of them like in more, in more danger and, and, and potentially setting them both up to be in a lot more trouble because like, you know, her car is left there. This other car is left. I mean, it's actually drawing more attention. I feel than just, you know, going through with the natural consequences of it. Well, yeah, and also, like, there are a lot of other things, like, there are a lot of other ways that this could have been handled. Um, She could have, like, just taken Jason out of the car and driven him home in her car, and they could have claimed that the De Laurentiis car was stolen. Yeah. Uh, They could have, you know, like, she could have just taken Jason home and or to the hospital and said he was concussed and waited uh, you know, hopefully long enough so that no one would do a blood alcohol test on him. Like, there are a lot of other things that she could have done. And in the moment, uh, her deciding on this is kind of weird. And also, I'm not sure if this is true or not, because I haven't rewatched these, episode ton- these episodes a lot of times. But do we ever hear about this car crash again? Or is this, like, actually siloed off just in this episode as a thing that matters? I, I think, and this might be wrong... I think that what this just basically becomes is another building block in the Toby, in, the, in like the Toby breakup of like Toby having to lie for Spencer and Toby feeling like the liars are so dishonest. And how can he trust them? And, you know, and sort of this idea that Spencer somehow kind of like made Toby turn dark with all of her, you know, her lying and her schemes or something like that. Oh my goodness. Well, but that I- is disappointing. I also think that there's a, a little bit of a thing happening here that doesn't really get addressed, which is that Spencer is prioritizing Jason over Toby. I do think mm. it's here. Um, and, and it's, but it's not, they're not really like coming out and saying that. And maybe, I mean, maybe, like, maybe it's because they're, I, I, I do think that there's like an uncomfortable, inconvenient truth here which is that there is a certain amount of chemistry between Jason and Spencer that doesn't necessarily feel like sibling chemistry. And I am wondering if maybe they were reluctant to um, sort of call out this whole Spencer picking Jason thing in fear of sort of, maybe at that point in the series, they actually didn't want to go to the incest well. And then, you know, later they changed their minds. And so I, I wonder, I do feel like there's a little bit of an element of Spencer choosing Jason. And, and maybe a little bit of a way from calling that out. 
that's just that's just a little bit of a conspiracy here. Yeah, that is that is really well. I think uh, it was very recently when we were talking about Jason, and I said he kind of reminds me of Roger Sterling from Mad Men, like a you know kind of a, a hedonistic, uh, wealthy, never faces any consequence, alcoholic type of character. Yeah, and uh, this this moment actually made me think of Mad Men again. Uh, but it made me think of Don telling Peggy uh, when she's giving her baby up for adoption and he's visiting her in the hospital and he tells her uh, this never happened. Someday yeah. you'll, you'll be, you'll be surprised by how much it never happened. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking about how Don Draper, spoiler, <laughs> spoilers for Mad Men, uh, how Don Draper is really Dick Whitman. And I was thinking, boy, someone should really write about the parallels between Mad Men and PLL because think about Don Draper's past as Dick Whitman and think about all the characters in PLL who show up claiming an identity that is not theirs from the fake architect, Mrs. Potter's nephew to, um, you know, to cousin Nate who's wandering around pretending to be someone he's not to Charlotte CC Drake in this episode uh, so I think it's really, I, I think that's really interesting uh, to think about all of the people who just show up taking on a new face in this town. Yeah, that's really, that's really great. I think you should write that. <laughs> <laughs> write, a, write, a, write something about that. Um, yes, this is not a great plan, Spence. Um, Back at Radley, Arya and Hannah are looking for Mona, like very loudly, just kind of clomping around, like so unsubtle. They're both in their very bright outfits, like girls, girls, come on, come on, at least like at least, at least bring it back a pair of shoes or something. Like, well, with all of the animal noises that we've been hearing, uh, the Radley people probably just think like, oh, it's you know. It's those horses that we have <laughs> clomping around in in reception. It's the horse in the hospital. Um, Arya asks if Mona is still a... Arya, like, I feel like after that whole emotional conversation with Mona, Arya really needs a lot of clarity on, like, what Mona's deal is. Um, but they kind of... They, they, they sort of just, like, follow where they think Mona may have gone, and they come upon um, the children's ward which is uh, this area of the sanitarium that has previously been locked, but it now is open, the door is open, and it looks as though the lock has been like picked or broken with a pair of tweezers, which Hannah identifies as her own, and um, Aria like, quickly chastises her for you know, bringing tweezers to a mental asylum, which, you know, fair point, Aria, although you did bring those earrings. Um, I find it so interesting that we have the building blocks of Charlotte's backstory here. We have the Radley Children's Ward, we have Kenneth, we have Charlotte herself, Cece, and we have Ted all in the same episode. And we have a, a Mrs. D sort of De Laurentiis family, like lots of shout outs to the De Laurentiis family. Yeah, that's very true. I feel like they may they may have had like Charlotte is her sister. She's going by Cece. She's well. No, I don't think they knew she was her sister because I don't think they would have given her the the Jason plot if they knew. But like, I think they might have had a general outline of Charlotte having been raised in Radley at this time. That this comes in in the same episode 
where Charlotte is first introduced. Uh, and I think maybe what happened was it wound up it wound up feeling too obvious that Charlotte or Cece was going to be A. Like when she's there in the in the Christmas episode where all of a sudden there are two yellow dresses and it's unexplained and it's like, well, okay, she's a lost De Laurentiis. Like that is a fact. But so it's almost like, well, did they did they decide to do the transgender twist just because it was they felt it was too obvious otherwise? Because what a horrible motivation. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, and it, you know, it, it does feel like a kind of thing where you're not going to introduce the children's ward and then not have it be that a character was raised there. Like, you you know, I mean, you almost have to at that point. But like, yeah, it. I think that without the without the big like transgender gotcha of it all it it could have worked really in a very interesting way or even like finding out that another character had spent some time there like mona uh-huh, uh-huh. oh yeah yeah because yeah. mona does seem to feel very called to this place agree agree uh over at spencer's toby is waiting impatiently on her couch when she comes in, she hugs him and asks him for a ride back to her car. Instead of doing the thing that she is communicating as an urgent need, he stalls her by demanding various explanations. Uh, there's a knock on the door, and lo, it is the police, as represented by Wilden, who enter the home without an invitation or a search warrant. Uh, Spencer's vehicle was found near the scene of an accident. Uh, and then Toby, with no prompting, claims that Spencer has been here with him all evening. He picked her up after work and they have not left the house at all. Uh, and despite strong evidence to the contrary, the cops believe him, I guess, because he is a man. He even sells it with a chuckle of like, ha ha, little lady shouldn't be leaving your car unlocked, but you know those women folk. After the cops leave, Toby then has the nerve to bust Spencer's chops about making him lie, which I would like to note she did not ask him to do. He's like, that lie is a felony. Well, you made a free choice there, buddy. You could have stayed silent. You could have told the police you got, you know, to get lost until Veronica gets home. But no, you made a choice and now you want to hold Spencer accountable for that. Uh, Spencer admits that Jason was drunk and she was helping him flee the scene of the accident, but then she asks him not to tell anyone. Because Jason could lose everything for some. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> like, what happened to the bus? Like, where did Spencer park that bad boy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, where's, where's that busted up car? And also, like, Spencer's car was running, so, like, not only, like, not only was it unlocked, but she, like, left the keys in it, too. This is a wildly implausible story. Like, this is, like, sometimes the Rosewood PD are, like, a shovel? You all must be murderers. And then other times, they're, like oh, your car got stolen and then weirdly abandoned at the scene of an accident? Okay, sure. Or like, oh, Noel Kahn was randomly beheaded when he <laughs> tripped and fell on the blade of an axe? Must be so. Like, <laughs> the times when they have, like, a credulity versus incredulity, <laughs> it is very hard to predict. <laughs> that one will always go down, though, as, like... The most perplexing of all. 
it, it actually it reminds me of um it reminds me in of Batman where Two-Face at Harvey Dent will like flip a coin and then if it comes up heads he's like one if it comes up tails he's the other like it's like that's what the rosewood cops are doing they're like well heads i guess we'll buy this ridiculous story tails we won't and most of the time it's tails but every now and then you just get a pass every now and then you be ahead someone and it's like "Eh, happens every once in a while don't worry about it oh my god So Hannah and Arya creep around the very uh, creepy children's ward, following the sound of humming. Um, this is a scary feeling place that seems like it's been forgotten to the south, the sands of time. Um, they find Mona brushing a doll's hair, and she starts chanting, "Miss Arya, you're a killer, not Ezra's wife." Miss Arya, you're a killer, not Ezra's wife. Um, which. And then, like, Hannah kind of pulls the doll away from her and sort of, Mona kind of breaks out of that trance and then goes into another one as she starts brushing another doll's hair and goes, where were we? Maya's away sleeping sweet until Garrett's all rosy count on me. Where were we? Maya's away sleeping sweet until Garrett's all rosy count on me. Um, And then as, like, the the footsteps of the nurse approaches, Arya and and, uh, Hannah are, like, understandably freaked out by this. Mona's very good at that. Uh, they kind of go and hide in a closet, and Mona begins her her last chant: "No one to save Allie from evil. No one to save Allie from evil." Um, the nurse arrives to pull Mona away. Mona says, sort of wistfully, "I missed my dolls." And Hannah and Aria uh, come out of the closet with very startled expressions on their faces. Yes. Yes. Oh. Uh, this is this is so so good. I love the code. I love Mona communicating uh, in the code. Um, yeah, it's really good. I also this was this was an episode where I really thought uh, I really thought there were signs uh, of Ren being a because uh, when Mona says that she missed uh, I missed my dolls, I thought that maybe the MD there was trying to indicate a doctor of some kind. Oh. But but no, never went anywhere. Well, and this is also the start of like one of the longest running, you know, question marks in PLL fandom. What did Maya know? <laughs> Won't Marlene tell us? Won't she tell us in a tweet what Maya <sighs> um, yeah. Maya knew Maya knew everything and nothing. What Maya knew does not unfortunately matter in the grand scheme of anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so rough. Um, Arya is now back home, uh, and she has finally called her mom back. Ella is still on her date. Uh, the dud date with Pastor Ted has ended uh, because she doesn't really like him or how he eats ice cream like Byron, and she wants to be open to new possibilities. Ahem. Like, Ashley. <laughs> but no, she means Zach, the owner of the brew, who she is on her second date in one night with. Uh, and Arya teases her a little. And then as she is crawling into bed with Hannah, jokingly calls her mom a slut. Which this is two instances of slut shaming in this episode. But I think that Arya says this because it's supposed to jog Hannah's memory vis-a-vis the code.
their whole thing is so much more fun. And then I grew up. It's like, you know, it's like, this is like the, how real life Gilmore Girls would play out. Where it's like, it's all fun and cute. But like, actually, it's helpful when the parent is a parent, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Emily is, I think, still continuing on her stroll towards home. Like, she's just been walking towards home forever. Because um, she's, well, she's, she's in the lake house universe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no one else is around. Time moves differently. She's in the lake house verse. Um, she sees that Nate has been stood up for his date at the grill. He looks very disappointed. Um, and I, I can just take the next little part because it's... Oh, yeah. Uh, Hannah is tossing and turning. She can't get to sleep. She and Arya are sleeping very close in that tiny bed, by the way. Um, and then Mona's voice uh, is looking at a doll. She realizes something. It's a code. Um, and then we kind of cut to all of the liars gathered together on Arya's bed, presumably later that night. Hannah is explaining the code. Um, she says that Mona doesn't trust Arya. That's why, uh, that's why she was saying these to them, not saying them these, these things to them outright. Um, and remembering the day with Allie's dad was a cue for Hannah to remember the code. Um, I really like how Hannah is like picking up on the way that Mona was prodding her here. And she doesn't seem really upset or anything. She just seems kind of like, oh, like just very factual about it. Um, Arya and Hannah recall the rest of the riddles and realize um, you, know, you know, one of them was not safe. They don't actually say Maya knew, but then they realize that where were we? Maya's away sleeping sweet until Garrett's all rosy count on me is actually a website, www.mosssugar.com. Um, they type in, Spencer types in the website and up comes a picture of Maya's face and a prompt for a password. Um, we have a little, um, you know, bit of uh, like... <laughs> as these episodes will do and as an episode title does, uh, you know, mental mental health shaming here where uh, Spencer has a comment about, I don't suppose crazy slipped you the password. Um, Arya asks if Mona meant that uh, she's not safe or that they're not safe. Yeah, this is a, uh, this is a great, a great moment. I love the code so much because yeah. it's the kind of thing uh, it's it's the kind of thing that I feel like, uh, you know, like girls would do. Girls would have a code with each other, young girls uh, who want to communicate uh, in secret so that other people don't know what they're talking about. Maybe so they can talk sexy to each other without other people knowing or, you know, I, I think I think it might be that because Spencer is immediately able to decrypt the code uh, as Emily and Aria are still looking puzzled about how exactly it works. And Spencer's right. like, not like it's complicated. <laughs> exactly. But anyway, the code seems so much like a thing that young girls would have, but that would be a good tool for evading, um, you know, like the notice of the omnipresent male gaze, like that people like, uh, you know, people in positions of power wouldn't really think was important enough to bother with. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that they could s slip in some some really, really important stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I, I love everything about the code, uh, and I love that that Mona was using it in this episode um, to communicate with Hannah in this particular way, and that it's another way of Mona. Like after Arya was like, "If Hannah ever mattered to you," it's another way for Mona to draw this circle 
that has her and Hannah on the inside and everybody else on the outside. Yeah, and it's another way for... Yeah, for Mona to sort of reignite their friendship and reignite um, Hannah's, like, Hannah's own smarts, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Like, yeah. And Hannah's intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I totally agree. Also, um, I really I really think it's interesting, like, now we're getting this, um, you know, Maya has this whole website that Emily, like, didn't really have any idea about. And also... Uh, Maya was like giving Jenna rides home from school. This is like the era of like, oh, what was Maya doing during like all of season two when Emily really didn't care about their relationship? <laughs> right, like she had this whole, this whole secret life, huh? Yeah, yeah. It really seems, uh, it really seems like she did. Uh, but then we move on to the A tag, which the gloved hand is in the children's ward at Radley picking up a doll and retrieving a tape recorder from its back. Uh, when pressed, it plays back Mona's coded sentences. I feel like this is a moment that is super creepy, but like not terribly surprising. Like, yeah, we know that A records them, but like the image of A strangling a doll is creepy. And also if you think about A as Charlotte, like imagining what that would be like to go back into that children's ward is really, is really sort of devastating well it's also very interesting uh when we think about how much does mona know or or not know how much does she remember uh it's interesting that mona leads them to the children's ward when they're asking about who's doing this to them mona takes them to a place that could be a significant clue because it winds up being like part of charlotte's origin story Really good point. Yeah, yeah. There's there's really a lot of um, whether intentional or not, a lot of breadcrumbs in this episode for things to come. Yeah, yeah. Um, next week is stolen kisses, which is a really great Paley episode, um, and just a really fun episode in general. I mean, yeah. After that is the con game, which I think is like one of the most fun episodes of season three. So we are we are in a good good spot here. Yes, yes. And next week uh, we're going to be releasing the episode a little bit later. We're looking to release on Friday, perhaps because um, of a scheduling issue. But yeah, we will be we will be back with stolen kisses. Uh, at that time and man I feel like the we're we're getting into like kind of the part where season three starts to get like you know this episode is called crazy and there's a lot of uh it starts to get more and more unhinged as we as we move to the the climax of the mid-season finale of the season oh yes things are things are definitely definitely getting kooky um especially like the more time we spend at Radley and everything like yeah, things are things. We're gonna be like busting out mannequin legs, and I mean, <laughs> yeah, we're, we are in for a good time. Um, if you have thoughts on this episode, we would love to hear from you. You can send us an email at everybodyapodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our Instagram at everybodyapodcast, um, or send in a rating and review on iTunes. Um, yeah, it is it is fun to be fun to be starting the year with with more PLL. Always always. Yeah, yeah, and with uh, with Cece, I can think of no better way to kick off the year. Absolutely, absolutely. Till next time. Take care.